Let's welcome Paul. Oh, there we go. Right. Excellent. Well, good to see everybody. Good to see everybody here in the building. It's my first time in the building with people. It's, uh, it's very strange having not been here since March, um, but it's really good to, to, to see people already in these kind of strange ways where we're all kind of uh, looking like something out of a Western. Uh, <laughs> it's really good to see you. Good to see people on Zoom uh, virtually. Oh, they've gone now. I've got my slide, but good to see you. And if you're watching it on the recording, it's good to see you as well. That feels a bit like Gary Lineker on a match of the day, you know, see you on the iPlayer. Uh, but I, I just wanted to uh, echo what Jesus said, really thanks to all the, all the people behind the scenes who've done all the technology to make this happen. Uh, really uh, excellent stuff. And I know it's not straightforward, so uh, it looks seamless, but it isn't. So thank you to all you who've, who've done all that for us. Um, today we're going to carry on in our Luke series. And we're going to look in Luke 16 uh, and the parable of the shrewd manager, or as I've called it, money, use it or lose it. <laughs> um, maybe the, the question I want to sort of pose at the start is where do you go for financial advice uh, do you go to the Bible or do you go somewhere else or is really Bible the first place you go or is it kind of the last place or do you go there at all and if, if we ask people in the street where they went for financial advice and what would we get if we did a survey that's kind of where we're heading now, when you, when you get asked by Ian to do these uh, talks on a Sunday morning, he, he gives you a bag full of uh, Bible commentaries to help you with sort of the background reading, which is quite the right thing to do. Um, so I said, yeah, okay, you know, I'll, 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 I'll have a go at uh, this, this, this first part of uh, Luke 16. I'll do some preparation. Little did I know, when I opened up the commentaries, <laughs> so each, these guys have got, these people have got big brains. Each commentator has a different take on the passage, which is helpful. But all of them, there was unanimity on one point. And they all said, this is the most confusing parable in the Bible. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, okay, thanks, thanks Ian, for that. <laughs> so it's, we're in for a fun morning this morning. Um, but before we get there, we're just going to do a little bit of a recap of where we've been last week in Luke 15. And I think uh, the last couple of weeks, and Andre and uh, Dave Holden really served us well in helping us work our way through that chapter, didn't they? Um, three quite famous parables about a lost coin and a lost sheep and then the lost son, or as Dave Holden put it, the lost sons, which I thought was a really uh, good take on it. And Andre kind of reminded us, didn't he, about the challenge Jesus poses in terms of expecting his followers to be different from their culture and leave everything to follow him. That was quite, uh, I, I certainly found that uh, really challenging, but sort of in a, in a, in a good way. And then uh, he kind of went on, didn't he, to pose a question, are we willing to be part of God's plans to save the lost? And are we prepared to speak of the hope that's within us? And then Andre and Dave both showed us through the three parables about God's compassion and his love for the lost. And particularly last week, Dave was kind of explaining about that, the father in the parable and how he ran after the lost son, didn't he? But he was also trying to draw back the elder son as well. And really, Dave also helped, just to finish the recap, it's helpful for today to remember that Jesus is talking to two audiences in this bit of Luke. He's talking to the sinners and the tax collectors and the people who are sort of excluded in society, but actually they know they're lost. They know they're lost and they're looking for an answer. 
And then he's also talking to the Pharisees and the religious people who are actually looking down on Jesus for engaging with sinners and tax collectors. And the more worrying thing for them is they don't know they're lost. And Jesus is trying to point out to them, you're lost too. And you need a saviour. And in Luke 15, I think that's why Jesus does Luke 15 before Luke 16. I know the, the chapters are kind of a, uh, a historical construct. They weren't there when Luke wrote the book. But the order of it is kind of why is he written this recording? Why is he recorded Jesus' life in this way? And why did te- Jesus teach in this way? And it's important this morning for what we've got to talk about money, that before we get there, to remind ourselves that in, in that previous chapter, Luke is talking about and is reminding us about God's love for us, his un, unconditional love for us, and that he is compassionate towards us, and that it's a free gift. We can't do anything to earn God's love. He just, it, it, it's, it, he loves us, and, and that's, and that's important as we, as we move into Luke 16. So, Ben, at the back, can we have slide two? We've lost the clicker, so we're using old technology here to move the slides on. So, where have we got to? I thought, just to remind us where we are, where Jesus is teaching to, uh, to people in the northern bit of that map in Galilee, near the top. And he's kind of working his way around the, the lake. I don't know whether you can see the lake. You probably can't on Zoom. You might just about be able to hear. But essentially... He's in the northern part of that map, and he's been there for a while. And actually, when this story that we're about to read is told, he's, 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 he's coming towards the end of that public ministry in Galilee. And he's kind of in a part of the world where people know him, because he's been there a while, and, and word has spread about him. But also, it's important to remember that the whole of that region is under Roman control. So it's a bit like it's an occupied country. And the people are living under the, literally the fear of, Ro- of Rome. And th- their lives are impacted, completely impacted. And there are sort of a bit of parallels. It's not quite the same, but we're living under COVID and it impacts our lives. If you lived under Rome, it impacted you. You had to pay tax to the Romans. You had to do things in a certain way. You couldn't go out at a certain time. There were soldiers on the streets. It was pretty full on. And the other factor is, Jesus knows he's going to eventually confront the Pharisees more than he is at the moment. So at the moment, they're kind of around and they're looking at, looking at him. And the reason that they're kind of monitoring him is because he's talking about things that challenge their world of view and actually challenge the way that they, as the religious leaders, are able to control the people as well. But he knows he's heading south. So if you, at the bottom of the map, you can't quite see it, but where it says Judea, you've got Jerusalem and Jericho. He's heading for Jerusalem and for a confrontation with them. But that's, that's one for another day. But just as an aside, Ben, if you could stick up slide three. This is my little plug. If you want to look more into the backstory, then if you haven't done it already, look at this TV series, The Chosen. And um, like all TV things, it has its weaknesses and faults, but uh, it's, you know, it can't be completely true to the story. But it... It's the person who plays Jesus, the guy on the left, and the way it's filmed, it kind of gets you into what it's like to live. I got more of a sense from watching it of what was it like to be somebody who lived at the time of Jesus. And and, and the the impact it had of being in Roman rule, how the Pharisees behaved, uh, what it was just like, how life was, how it was, you know, it was hard work, you had to fish or you had to uh, tend your crops or whatever it was. So if you haven't 
had a chance, take a look at that. And I do like the line from that particular still, get used to different, is one of the phrases Jesus, the, the actor, uses uh, in the course of the story. And I think today we'll, we'll get a bit more of get used to different. Anyway, that's enough of the recap. If, we, if you've got a Bible or you've got your phone or your tablet, then uh, let's look at uh, Luke 16. So if you turn to that, and I'll just quickly pray for us as, we, as you do that. Father God, we pray as we uh, look at your word this morning on this uh, particular parable of the shrewd manager, that you'd speak to each of us, you would, uh, that we'd be open to hear from you, God, and to apply what we hear uh, in our lives today. Amen. Right, Ben, if we move on to slide four, then if you could sort of follow through as I'm reading through the story, that'd be great. So this is a story that it's titled The Parable of the Shrewd Manager. Jesus told his disciples that there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be the manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? Hmm. My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do that so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Phew, well, Jesus isn't holding back, is he? He's pretty confrontational with the Pharisees. And he's pretty challenging with the sinners and tax collectors. And the parable is pretty confusing, isn't it? It certainly has a bit in the middle which makes you go, uh, Jesus, not quite getting that. Are you actually telling me that it's okay to be dishonest and to pull the wool over the eyes of my 
boss? Um, no, I don't think that is what Jesus is saying. And it's important to remember it's a parable. So it's a story with a meaning and it is a story that, God, that Jesus is using to give us an aspect of God's character or what, God, what the kingdom of God looks like. But we have to work our way through it and unpack what it means. So let's do that for a bit and then I'll just give a few kind of um, points of application of what I've picked up or what God I think has been uh, asked me to say this morning. But let's start with the rich man. Well, the rich man's clearly very rich, isn't he? Judging by the fact he employs a manager to handle his work contracts and the scale of the debts that the people that have contracted with him have built up. So to give you an idea, 900 barrels of olive oil is equivalent to the annual yield of 150 olive trees. Now, for us living in Seven Oaks, it probably doesn't mean much. What's 150 olive trees mean in money terms? Well, the Bible scholars tell us that's three years' wages of the average agricultural labourer. So it's a lot of money. Olive oil is clearly worth a lot of money. And then it gets even bigger with the wheat. Now, the wheat, we may have a bit more of an idea about on the basis we might drive past some fields of wheat from time to time. A thousand bushels is a 30 tonnes of wheat. So that's equivalent to the annual yield of 100 acres or 10 years average wages of the average ag agricultural labourer at the time. So even more money. And then what do we know about the manager? Well, there seems to be some public knowledge that the manager isn't doing a good job because it isn't the, it isn't the rich man who hauls him in and says, I can see that you're doing a really bad job here. He's saying, I've heard that you're doing a really bad job. And the manager is then put on notice by the rich man that he isn't going to have the job any longer. And we don't know quite why, the, what, what's causing the manager to be... Uh, that he's not doing a good job. Is it incompetence? Is it corruption? Is it something else? But he's certainly not doing a good job. So we've kind of reached that point a bit like if you watch The Apprentice, you know after they've done the task and they get back in the boardroom and they're all sitting there slightly uncomfortably because at the start of the program they've said they're brilliant, they're world beaters and they weren't then able to set up a sandwich shop or whatever it is. And you've seen the program so you know where kind of they've succeeded or where they failed. And then uh, Lord Sugar and his, whoever the, his assistants are, are sat, sitting there, and they're not looking good, are they? They're kind of looking a bit grumpy, particularly with the team that, that have done really badly. And he says, one of you is going to be fired. But then they go out of the room, don't they? And they have a kind of another bit of a discussion before they come back in and the person is fired. And it's a bit like here in the story. The manager has been put on notice by the rich man. But he hasn't actually been fired yet. So he's got this notice period and he kind of thinks, ah, okay, I've got time to do something about it. What am I going to do? While I've still got this ability to do so, I'll write off some of these debts um, and get in people's good books. Now, there's had a bit of a debate about the amounts involved here. So some scholars think that the manager is effectively writing off his own dodgy commission that he's, he's, charged, he's, he's taken such a commission from the, from the debts that that's the problem, that's why he's going to get the sack. Others think he's writing off the interest that's been charged by the rich man. And if that's true, then the rich man and the manager are both in trouble because the, in Deuteronomy, if you look in Deuteronomy 23, they're told not to charge interest to other people in their community. So, um, but the amounts involved here are pretty high. So it would be like a payday loan situation. It'd be like 100% interest. So other people think it's not that at all. Jesus is simply illustrating that 
people in this world can be very shrewd with money. He's just trying to use it as an exaggeration. Anyway, wh whatever the reason, Jesus is saying that there's a large debt write-off going off here. So half the olive oil, 20% of the wheat, and presumably similar amounts for other debts, because in the, in the start of the passage it says he went to all the debtors. So he's writing off a lot of capital from the, from the rich man's kind of books. I'm not really the best person to be telling this story. There are accountants in the church who would be much better at explaining this than me. But to my simple mind, it's basically he's, he's written off a lot of the rich man's potential income by doing this. Um, and he's doing it because he wants to get in the good books of the people in the community so that when he's out of a job, he can go to them for help and get a bit of uh, reciprocal help. And then how does the rich man react? Well, if we look in verse 8, that's the real twist. Because the rich man doesn't then go into one with him and say, this is really, really awful. You're a really, really bad manager. That isn't the thing that Jesus focuses on. The rich man acknowledges the manager's shrewdness. And it's a bit like that other parable in the Bible, or what prompted me when I was reading it, about the wise and foolish builders in Matthew 7, where... You may recall that there Jesus explains those wise builders who plan and build, and it's a challenge to build on the rock, but when the storm comes, the house survives. Whereas the foolish builders decide to take the easy route and build on the sand, and then when there's a problem, the building doesn't really survive. Well, it doesn't survive, it says it fell down flat. So what point is Jesus making here? I think he's challenging the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees about materialism and greed and that I think it's pretty easy we can see that in our own culture that is something that we don't need to watch the chosen to make the connection with uh, life today and he's telling us to have the right attitude to money to use it or lose it to think long term not short term to have the right perspective because we won't always have material possessions on this earth. The heavenly kingdom is coming when heavenly rewards are based on how you've done with your earthly possessions and how you stewarded them. And why is Jesus telling us all this? Because he knows that money can play tricks on us. And that's why he gets pretty strong later in the passage that we'll come back to just at the end. That you can't serve God and money. But first of all, let's have a think about this perspective. I used that word deliberately just now. Can we get the next slide, Ben? Now, you probably all know that's quite a famous, one of famous buildings in the world, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That's a younger version of me trying to hold up the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now, when you first look at the picture, you think, wow, you're not doing a bad job there, Paul. You've got a pretty good chance of holding up this building because although it's bigger than you, you know, you, you can give it a go. But look closer at the building and the people at the bottom of the tower. They're pretty tiny, aren't they? If you look at them in the background, if you look closely. So what's happened there? The camera has given you a false impression of how big I am compared with the leading tower of Pisa. Because I'm closer to the camera than the tower is or the people at the bottom of the tower. And it's a bit like that with money. Money can appear to be more immediate than God's provision because it's right near us and I'm very conscious when I'm speaking to you either here or on zoom or on the recording that there are people in there are people listening to me now in very different positions in terms of money I'm acutely aware of that but whatever our position money can play tricks on us 
And we can think that that's what provides us with security, safety, choice, happiness, health. And like all things, it, there's an element of truth in that. But ultimately, it's God who provides, not money. And as one of the commentators said, Andrew Wilson said, money impacts your soul and makes you proud and independent, irrespective of how much of it you've got or not got. And particularly that's true now, isn't it, in COVID times. People might think that they can use money to insulate themselves from the virus, although, as we've seen, even world leaders surrounded by security guards are still getting, are still getting the virus, aren't they? Not, not uh, just people, I was going to say just people, not people around the world, but people who you think were in some kind of secure bubble, but they're clearly got. So God knows that money is powerful and dangerous, and it's why the Bible teaches quite a lot about it. For example, this is, I thought this, this one just struck me as I get it as I was in from Matthew 19, that Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Which is a bit of a weird, again, another weird saying of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, some people think it's to do with a gate in Jerusalem that was quite narrow, and if you tried to drive a camel through it, it kind of damaged your camels. Uh, but what he's really just saying is it's hard for rich people, it's hard for those of us in the West who have a lot of money to really rely on God and his provision because money gets in the way and we think that money can do it and we don't need God. But more immediately, let's go back to Luke 16. He makes some interesting statements after that twist at the end of verse 8. In the second half of verse 8, Jesus acknowledges that people in this world are shrewd in how they relate to people and they use people to make money or build security and status. And that's an entirely logical and sensible thing to do if you don't think God provides, or you don't acknowledge God. And we probably all know people like that. I'm working for someone at the moment who's in the top 300 richest people in Britain. He's clearly very shrewd with money, and he knows what to do with it and how to make money. And then in verse 9, Jesus challenges the, his followers to use money to gain friends so that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So he kind of turns the world's view on its head. He says, rather than using people to make money, use money to make friends in eternity. Rather than using people to make money, use money to make friends in eternity. So what are eternal dwellings? What is, what is this concept that Jesus is using there in verse 9? So I th think he's pointing to the new heaven and the new earth that John describes in Revelation. He's trying to get people to see an eternal perspective, not an immediate perspective. And again, it's important here to repeat what we were kind of looking at in Luke 15. Followers of Jesus are guaranteed a place in heaven, pure and simple through God's grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. There's no conditional clauses there. Only if you do the right thing, only if you have a certain amount of status, only if you jump through these hoops. Saying if you truly repent and turn around and follow Jesus and commit your life to him, then your eternal destination is secure. And uh, if that's something that speaks to you today, then speak to Ian or one of the other uh, leaders afterwards. And uh, we've got Alpha and, and, and courses like that to, uh, to unpack those ideas further. So what Jesus is saying in verse 9 is that while followers of Jesus have certainty in terms of their destination, what happens when they get to their destination 
is dependent on how they've used the possessions and skills and talents and opportunities in this life, whatever they are, and they'll be different for each of us. And again, I was sort of preparing 1 Corinthians 3.11. Paul really uh, unpacks that idea that Jesus has uh, laid down here. And it says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to judgment. That's the judgment day. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Jesus then builds on this uh, at the end of Luke 16. And I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I'll just uh, try and uh, close with these, with some principles and, some, and, and a couple of lessons. So last slide, Ben. Three principles that I think Jesus is wanting us to think about here. In verse 10, about faithfulness. A generous attitude is dependent on how we view money, not on how much money we have. So it's about how we view money, not on how much we have. Start deliberately to tithe to the local church at an early age, and it sticks with you. And it helps you realize that money is not yours, but God's. A quick example, uh, I'm married to, to Karen and we lead a connect group here in, in, uh, in the church. And when we were first married, and we, were, we got married quite late in life, we had houses, we had two houses, and uh, we decided to sell them and buy one, and we needed to go and get a mortgage, and we were moving to Seven Oaks. And we went to see the mortgage provider, and he said, well, you can borrow this amount of money, and you'll be able to buy this really nice, shiny house over here. And we went away and scratched our heads and thought, well, yeah, we've got a choice here, we could do that. But actually, because we kind of, from our separate Christian lives, learned it's not our money and we have to, some of it has to go to God, we can't do what the mortgage provider says because he doesn't know that we've got that commitment because he just looked at our money in a different way. So we said, no, we're going to have this amount of money for the house purchase. And I think by doing that, God honoured us and got us the house that was the right for us at that time here. So, principle one, faithfulness. Principle two, stewardship. Kind of links to that. You are stewards of someone else's stuff. It's not your money. It's God's money. And you might be sitting there going, hang on, Paul, it is my money because I've earned it. I went and spent eight hours a day doing my work and it's in my bank account and the employer's given it to me. Well, yes, that's true. But how have you earned the money? Looking around the room here, I, can, I know some of you, I don't know all of you, there's loads of different skills and abilities and talents and opportunities that God's given you in different uh, settings. And that's because God's given you those. He's the ultimate provider. You, you've, you've had to work at them. I, can, I know some people in the room, you've had to work really hard to get certain qualifications and to have certain professional skills that are recognized in society. But God is the ultimate provider because he's given you those things to be able to work at them. And in the parable, God is the, rich, God is the rich man. He's the provider of all, and we're the manager and the steward of his stuff. And thirdly, the principle is worship, the worship principle in verse 13. If we can't serve God and money, how we use money shows who we truly worship. So, 
in closing, how do you rate yourself against these challenges of Jesus about money? How would it look if Jesus opened your bank account and gave you an audit in terms of how you stewarded his stuff? It is a bit about amounts, because the Bible talks about and gives us some ideas about tithing, because I think it knows that we find that helpful. But it's really about heart attitude. Are you seeking the kingdom of God or your material gain? And that's really hard for us in the West. That's a really challenging statement that Jesus poses to us. So that, what I've talked about, seeking first the kingdom of God, you might know comes from Matthew 6, verse 33. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And these things are what Jesus talks about in the preceding verses, the things that we need, that God knows that we need to live our lives on earth. He knows, because he sent Jesus, he knows that being human means we need, have needs for warmth, shelter, food. He knows that, and he will give us that. So in closing, three ways I think we invest in the kingdom of God for the long term rather than ourselves for the short term. We invest in our families so they're strong and follow God because living in families is one of God's big ideas for the kingdom of God to break out in this life. He knows that family is important and an important building block for that. The second one is we invest in our local church in its evangelism, in its teaching, in its mission, because local church is God's plan A for seeking the lost and saving the lost. He doesn't have a plan B. Local church is his plan A. And thirdly, we give to the poor and those in need, locally, nationally, internationally, because God's word tell us, tells us to do that, and it's pretty unequivocal in telling us. In James 1, 27, it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And that's why Christians can't remain silent on the subject of poverty. It's why it's important to us all the time. Whether the media focus on it or not, it's important to us. And we should, uh, we should think about what Jesus is challenging us. So, for the remainder of Luke 16, the challenge ramps up. It doesn't ramp down. <laughs> so next week, Jesus is looking at really focusing on the Pharisees who were the lovers and users of money. He continues to challenge us with teaching about the dangers of money and how it can be a false god. And then he uses this really strong word that is detestable to God. But for now, let's pray. I don't know if, if David, you can come back and um, in closing, we're just going to ask God to uh, speak to us about maybe the things that I've run through there. Maybe something there has really struck you or challenged you or got you thinking about your attitude to money or maybe something you need to change in your life uh, about being a follower of Jesus. And about being a follower of Jesus is about accepting that he's your saviour and he's also the king and I think with money that's really I get to say in our culture that's about is Jesus going to be the king let's, let's, uh, as we close let's just pray thank you God for sending Jesus thank you that through him we do have a relationship with you and our heavenly destination is secure that we can really trust that we know where we're heading thank you that you provide for our needs every day Thank you that you are the great provider. Help us to be good stewards of the money and the resources that you've given to each of us. And show us how to invest in your kingdom. 
that when we reach heaven, we are surprised by the number of friends that we didn't know we had because of the things that you've called us to invest in. And it's just touched lives that we didn't know that we touched. Thank you, God, that that's just an exciting aspect of following you. Pray now, Holy Spirit, you come now and touch each person here in the room, each person on the Zoom call, each person on the recording, that they would know the, the hope and the love and the security of Jesus, that you would prompt each of them to be good stewards of the resources, of the resources you've given to each of them to build your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Praise your name.